Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good morning. It is a joy to be here. It's a joy to share with you from the Word of God. Before we begin, I'd like to invite you to a prayer. Heavenly Father, we are coming closer and closer to this time where we reflect more and more on Thanksgiving. We reflect on everything that you have given us and continue to give us. Your hand that is so righteous, just, and yet merciful and gracious. Lord, and you continue to bless us with every spiritual blessing through every moment of our life. Father, it is a joy to reflect on how you bless us through the trials. It is a joy to reflect on how you do the work uh, that only you can fully understand. We might not even understand some of the things that you're doing until eternity, and yet you are definitely doing the work in our hearts individually, even as a church, corporately. Lord, we want to praise you for your faithfulness. We want to thank you for your goodness. And we ask you so that you would show us through the scripture today and give us a perspective of what you do in us as you take us through tough times in our lives. We pray that we would come out today having a thankful spirit that is full of joy, that is dependent on the truths that you reveal on the pages of Scripture. Not because we are just radically different because we can make ourselves feel in a certain way, but because we can think and reason through the Scripture and be encouraged by your Word, and we can have faith to take these truths and live them out in our lives. Father, we pray that you would bless us. Reveal the word of us to each and every one of the people here as you have shown to me. And I pray that you would do even a greater work with the power of the Holy Spirit to show this and help us live it out. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, before we begin, you can make your way to James chapter 1. Our passage is going to be verses 2 through 8. But as you're making your way there, I'd like to share with you a story that is written by Carl Olson in his book called Passion. He speaks about a young girl. Her name was Marie Durand. And she was living in the 17th century in the southern France. This was the time when there was a heavy persecution against the Protestants who were called Huguenots. Marie was brought before the authorities and was charged with the Huguenot heresy. She was 14 years old, bright, attractive, marriageable. She was asked to renounce the Huguenot faith. She was not asked to commit an immoral act or to become a criminal or even to change day-to-day quality of behavior. She was only asked to say one phrase, I renounce, no more, no less. Marie did not comply. Together with 30 other Huguenot women, she was put into a tower by the sea. For 38 years, she continued, and instead of the hated word, I renounce, she, together with her fellow martyrs, scratched on the wall of the prison tower the single word, resist. And the question I ask myself is, 
How? How can have someone have such a powerful, strong faith in order to persevere through a trial that lasted for 38 years until her death without seeing, so to speak, light of the tunnel? At least in this life. And I would like us to see that through Scripture, Scripture opens it and says that it is the endurance that leads to spiritual maturity and it leads to Christ-likeness that is able to carry us through any trial that the Lord will give us. Just like an athlete that builds tolerance and endurance so that he can break the world record in, as the fastest marathon runner, in the same way Christian faith is built in its endurance leading to maturity and wholesome wholeness. And the way our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, does indeed strengthen our faith and perfects it, he does so through trials. Understanding where you are, I know many of you where you are, some of you are struggling with chronic pains. You have dealt with chronic pain for years. And you may not even know whether that pain is going to go away. Some of you have had hardship with your relationships, perhaps with an unbelieving spouse. Or you may be dealing with disability. Or some of you are struggling with financial problems and living paycheck to paycheck. Some of you are just sharing the difficulties in the church as our church is going through some trial time. Whether it is in your workplace, whether it is in school, Many of you are going through trials. And if you're one of those people who says, well, I'm different. I don't have any trial right now. Trust me on this. It will come. You will encounter trials. It, it is just a matter of time. Yet the Lord is faithful. He continues to strengthen us. He continues to build us up through the trials. And he continues to perfect our faith. And this... There's one lesson that I'd like us to walk away with today. I want to encourage you. Is when you persevere through trial, do so as the scripture instructs you in order to reap the maximum benefit from it. As you persevere through a trial, do it in such a way as we will see in the scripture that you would benefit and reap the maximum benefit from the trial. Please take me, go with me to James chapter 1. I hope you had enough time to make it there. But I will read the first eight verses again. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ of the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that ye may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being 
a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Trials are real. Trials are painful. Trials are life-changing in many ways. And praise be the Lord for that. And yet trials are meant to first test our faith, to test and see if the faith is genuine, to take it through fire and see this is real. And the second thing is it is to strengthen it. Just like any piece of metal that you want to be pure and you want it to be strong, you take it through fire in the same way trials. They act like fire upon our life and they test our faith whether it is real or not and they make it stronger if we withstand it. They are like medicine. If the doctor tells you to take antibiotics and he as prescribed, if you take it as prescribed, you have a good chance to get rid of the infection. If you don't take it as prescribed, you, it's, the infection is going to be brooding in your body until you get into a sepsis or you're going to have an amputation or something else. Trials are to be carried out in the way Scripture prescribes to us. So if you look at the letter of James, most of the people agree that James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. James did not believe in Jesus until Christ's resurrection. And later we see from the book of Acts that he has become pastor of the church in the Jerusalem. But he writes here, we see, to those, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. And there's much debate on who are these dispersed abroad. There's no debate that he's writing to the Jews. When were they dispersed? That's a matter of a question. You have to understand the history of the Jewish nation, that they have been destroyed for years and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus Christ. And then after Christ's resurrection, they came, many, for the feast. And many have become, as the early church begun, they have become Christians. And many of them have stayed in Jerusalem. Some of them probably went back home and continued in their dispersion there. And some of them stayed and built a big, massive church in Jerusalem until persecution has begun. And we read from the book of Acts that there were a series of persecutions where the people had to flee Jerusalem, and this was meant to be by God in order to disperse them, in order to spread the gospel throughout Samaria and to the ends of the world, right? So that was the case. So he's writing now to the people, to the Jews, who now have become Christian, and they're dispersed outside of the perimeters of Palestine. And these Christians, as they have gone back to their places or they have gone outside of Jerusalem and Palestine, they are now are being persecuted. And we're back to persecution. It's interesting how any epistle we read, there's persecution. Every church that has been there in the early church has been persecuted. If you read the history of Christianity, the first hundred years of the persecution has not even been that severe. Starting about 100 B.C., persecution has intensified even more. But that's just a little side note. So these believers now outside of the Palestine, they report, report back to James and they tell 
they report that they are suffering. They're suffering. There is persecution. We see that from the book of James. We even see this on how James addresses this. As soon as he writes this epistle, in the very beginning, he immediately decides to address this topic of suffering and how to deal with it. If you flip a few pages to the end of the epistle, you can see that in chapter 5, verse 7, he goes back toward the end of the epistle. He again speaks about having patience. Look at verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So suffering and trials and pain, they're real for these people outside of Jerusalem. And James says, you have to approach in the proper way in order to benefit the most from these trials. If we look at our passage, verses 2 through 8, I would consider, I would divide them in four parts. I would do so in the way I've done it is by looking at the commands. There are four direct commands to do here. One of them is consider all joy. The other one is to let endurance have its result. The third one is to ask God for wisdom. And the fourth one is have faith. Must have faith. So there's, you can bring out four needs or four response requirements in order for someone to endure the hardship, endure the trials, and to receive the maximum benefit. And out of those, you can write this down if you'd like. Number one is joyful attitude. The other one is submissive will. The third one is the needy spirit. And the fourth one is unwavering faith. Let's take a look at verse 2. There is the first command, and he, James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The word trial in the Bible, it is, literally means of trying or testing or proving. And the word itself is very neutral and depends on the context that we read it in. It can mean viewed as a positive or a negative. From the passage that we read, it is in the positive sense that the trial actually works out your faith and strengthens it. And if you drop down to verse 13, as Tim read, let no one say when he's tempted, this is the same word trial, but it's in the negative sense in the way that it appeals to your flesh. And whether you will respond with the flesh or the spirit will determine whether it is a trial and has become a temptation for you, or you would stand it and leave it as a trial. Trials will cause grief and sorrow, so we must not think that they are not of any benefit just because we grieve. Trials are, you can see, are inevitable. You can see that James says, rejoice, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. It's not if you encounter various trials. It is when. It is inevitable. 
Take a look at the next one. Trials come in various forms and shapes. This word various means multicolored. They come in all kinds of shapes and forms. They, if the Lord has sends us at different times, a lot of times unexpected, and he appeals to you and your spiritual condition and your spiritual character in different ways. In fact, if you and I, and among all of us, would, let's say, encounter the same difficulty, same pressure, many of us would respond differently because of where we are. Some of us have said, well, it's the same thing as I've had three years ago, so I can just cruise through it. Some of you are thinking, I can't believe this is happening to me. This is the worst thing that has happened to me in my whole life. And it depends on our spiritual condition and our past and our experience and our faith, how we respond. And yet God knows, knows how to do so. It is extremely necessary and important to understand that trials are meant in order to do good for us. Let me remind you of Romans 8.28, where Paul writes, And we know that God causes all things together, all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Of course we believe this. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in predestination. We believe in the certain truths, and we stand, and we can defend them until the trial hits. And then we're shaky. We're like, well, I believe, but I'm not sure if this applies here in my life. Trials, number one, prove our faith to be genuine, but number two, trials teach us where we are. Charles Spurgeon said, Trials teach us what, what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we're made of. Takes us to the first command, to reap the benefit of the trial. We are to persevere through it with a joyful attitude. Now this is a paradox, right? If you read this to the unbeliever in the world, you say, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Are you kidding me? What do you mean by that? I'm having a hard time. I'm having difficult pain. How do I, should I consider it all joy? And that would be a normal, expected attitude that would be to grumble, to complain, to brood in self-pity. That is the attitude that we oftentimes experience. When we're going through a trial, sometimes we fall into this. and like, Lord, forgive me. Help me to rejoice in this. And then we come out of it and we rejoice and we focus on the right things. Now, this is not uncommon in the scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he says that you will be, you have been given inheritance. And in verse 6, he says this, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed. 
by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that you have not seen him, you love him. And then though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter was writing his epistle when there was massive persecution. Massive persecution, and he's speaking of joy. Because why? Because he wants them to take a different perspective. He wants them to see that this joy is not something where you put a smile on your face and you just actually say as if nothing happened. You ignore your pain. It is not that. It is you consider it joy because you have certain truths that you have evaluated and you believe in and you put your trust in. That is what considering means. It doesn't mean just to careless thought. It is careful thought. It's not a quick decision. It is conscious judgment resting on deliberate weighing of the facts. You look at the facts and say, is it worth for me to be joyful about or is it not? James doesn't call us to have some kind of meaningless and superficial joy. He does want us to have genuine and unmixed and a total joy when encounter trials. This radical attitude of having joy, it doesn't require us to deny emotional pain. That's not what it is. You know, when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, he didn't condemn Mary and said, why are you weeping? Right? He actually wept. In Hebrews we say, when Savior faced the cross, he did so by loud crying and tears. And yet Jesus didn't lose the joy that he had while going through pain and suffering. Even Hebrews 12, 11 says, All discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful, yet sorrowful. So G James doesn't mean to put on the face and deny that you're hurting. We discussed and we heard last time as Jan was preaching from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that having joy is not a matter of feeling. Having joy is a matter of conscious and determined commitment. It's like having love. You talk to a couple and they say, I fell out of love three years ago. That's why I don't love my wife or my husband. And we say it's not... You fell out of it, so now who knows when you're going to be falling back into it. Your love, just like joy, it is a commitment. You review it. You say it is worth it. You see it as a command from the Lord, and you say, I am committed to have joy, even in this time. It is easy to proclaim, I trust in God. Anyone can say that. I trust in God. But the test of the faith is when you know exactly whether it's genuine or not, when you persevere through the trial and you say, yes, I have trusted him all the way through. I'll tell you an encouragement, brothers and sisters. Because you have the Spirit of God, it is not impossible task. It is truly not impossible task because, and we know it, we experience it, 
Because when we go through trials, we do have that inner joy. Maybe we just have to come back to it a little bit more. Right? So why would you not have joy? Well, because you may not have proper knowledge. Or because you're not renewing your mind in the proper truth. Look at with me in verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Testing of your faith produces endurance. Yes, let's say your faith is genuine. Now what happens to it? It actually produces endurance. According to Webster Dictionary, endurance is the ability to withstand hardship or adversity. Ability to sustain a prolonged stressful effort or activity. Being in the dungeon for 38 years, that is endurance. You see? And you may say, well, are you saying that I'm going through a test and it is painful to me and I have to persevere through it and live through it and become and gain endurance so that I could withstand a heavier trial later on? And the answer is yes. Yes. Whatever you are, whatever trial you're going through or may be going through, it is not the worst trial you will be probably going through. The Lord will take you, and if you reap the maximum from it, and you, you grow your faith through the trial, the Lord will probably allow you to taste a little bit something harder next time. I'm sure you're excited about that. <laughs> but endurance is something that anyone who is in the military, anyone who is in the professional sports, this is what exactly they work for. They gain it. You know, Roger Bannister became the first person to break the four-minute mile run. This was the 1950s. Since then, it's been like 1,500 people already who beat that record. But 50 years ago, it was the first man who ran a mile in under four minutes. And it says that he did so in order to shave just one second. He spent one year training. Because when you're so close, <laughs> you want to do this, right? And you spend one year to building endurance so that you could actually do so under four minutes. This happens everywhere in the military. In order for you to withstand an enemy, the strength of the enemy, you have to have endurance that is greater than your enemies. In the same way, trials, suffering, affliction, or testing, we discover that our trust in the Lord is not only intact, but it's also stronger for more testing. Our faith and love for God increases and strengthens so that we would be more useful for his kingdom. So we've looked at the first command to have a joyful attitude in order for you to reap maximum benefit. Number two, it is to have a submissive will. Take a look at verse four. And let endurance have its perfect result. Let endurance. It is a command. Allow endurance have its perfect result submit to it now that doesn't mean that you stop praying for relief right paul prayed that god would remove the thorn of the flesh he stopped praying only when god says my grace is sufficient to you 
But he kept praying about it. Remove it, Lord. Remove it. So you don't stop. That doesn't mean that. That you submit and you just kind of wait it out. Be submissive doesn't mean that it is necessary that we do not take appropriate steps to fix the problem. If you lost your job or you're having difficult times in your finances, obviously you look for another job. You look where you can pick up extra work, right? You pray for it. You depend on the Lord to it. But you still do that. If you have a trial of illness, doesn't mean that you just wait it out and don't seek healing, don't seek medical attention. But if you don't submit, you grumble. In some way, you like defiantly shake your fist in the face of God, telling him, how dare you do this to me? When are you going to stop this? That is not submission. Submitting to him, when we're not submitting to him, if we ignore him and take matters into our own hands, apart from prayer and faith. One of the best examples of submission was Job, right? He has gone through enormous trial where he lost possession and family, and he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And yet he was grieving. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In some way, we are to allow to run its course. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul writes, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body of dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Do you feel crushed, in despair, or forsaken? Do you feel forsaken? Do you feel like you're being destroyed? Or perhaps you dropped your hands and you're not letting endurance have its perfect result. Paul gives an example how to still persevere through it. Now it leads to another benefit. This endurance leads to maturity. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Perfect doesn't mean sinlessness. It doesn't mean this perfection where you have no longer sinning. But it means of this spiritual maturity. You know, you could be a sinner who is immature sinner, or you could be a sinner that is a mature sinner. Right? You could be a sinner when you sin, you know exactly what you need to do. You know how to fix this. You know how to repent before the Lord. You, need, you know how to come to Him and seek forgiveness. You know how to resolve the conflict around your people. That is mature sinner. A sinner who is immature just falls into despair. Any trial he has, he just drops his hands and he says, I don't want to deal with this. Hebrew says, Unfortunately, many Christians give in to spiritual infantile paralysis and remain in a state of childish backwardness in their spiritual life. Maturity is where we want to be. Maturity is what is built up 
that it is Christ-likeness as we go through the trials. The second one you see the benefit is this completeness. It carries the idea of being whole and entire. When an animal was brought as a sacrifice, it had to be whole. It had to have all its limbs. It can't be dirty in some way, sick, weak, right? It had to be whole. In the same way, a Christian who has endured much suffering and has grown through it develops all necessary virtues that characterize him as a mature believer. 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, and strengthen, and establish you. This is what happens when someone endures through suffering. Let me give you an example from F.B. Meyer. He explains it this way. A bar of iron, bar of iron, worth $2.50. When it is worked into horseshoes, it is worth double, $5. If made into needles, it is worth $175. If into penknife blades, it's worth $1,625. If made into springs for watches, it is worth $125,000. So he says, what a trial by fire. The bar must undergo to be worth this. But the more it is manipulated and the more it is hammered and pressed and passed through the heat, beaten, pounded, and polished, the greater its value. Christian, are you wondering about the trials to which you're passing? With impatient heart, are you saying, how long, O oh Lord? The heat of the flame and the blows of the hammer are necessary if you are to be more than an unpolished, rough bar of iron. God's all-wise plan, though it calls for the fire, produces the valuable watch spring of maturity. Beautiful, huh? <laughs> Who do you want to be? You want to be a piece of bar? Or do you want to be a spring that is extremely expensive? What does a Christian that has persevered through a series of trials may look like? Have you ever seen, have you ever thought about it? Like, what is it that, what kind of a person, what kind of a character should, does God want me to be as I complete a series of trials over and over? And I'll give you a little bit of how I see it. It is a man who, or a woman, who through difficult times has learned not to be resentful and bitter and self-pitying. That's like one of the most important requirements. His faith is strong and he or she can handle difficulties. He's able to take rejections, shame, persecution from the world. He's strong enough to serve in the greater capacity in God's kingdom. Not just a piece of bar of iron, but a spring. If someone has gone through a series of trials and has persevered, Christian who persevered, he learned from his own mistakes. Sometimes our trials is because of our mistakes and sins in the past, and God is chastising us for that. He has become more pure in conduct and thought and in word. One who persevered through trials has been learned how to humble himself before the Lord. 
This person has learned to trust the Lord and not to exalt himself in personal accomplishments. Remember Paul? Where he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself there, was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Through the trial, we'll learn to say, hey, you know what? I'm just a servant. Whatever the Lord has given me, by His grace, there's nothing I have to exalt Him. One who has learned through the trial, learn not to cling to his personal idols. Things that are he or she loves more than Christ or depends on more than Christ. Mature person learns to value what is valuable in God's eyes. May it be career, success, education, possessions, ministry, family, could be your children, Whatever you value more now, the Lord sometimes takes it away, takes you through a trial, teaches you to love Christ more, depend on things, on Him more than on anything else. Philippians, Paul says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. One who has gone through trials has become more focused on eternal and heavenly hope. You go through trials, oh, heaven becomes so much closer, so much more dear, homey. <laughs> You're looking forward to it, right? Praise the Lord. And this is truly what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, for consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The one who has endured through much suffering has learned how to help others through their trials. Once you go through a trial, once you go through pain, you now are able to love and appreciate and understand someone who's going through a trial so much more better than you have were able to do before. Second Corinthians chapter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's beautiful. He uses us and pain in our lives that when we go through that, we're able to comfort other people as they're hurting. So we've looked at the two commands, considering it all joy, coming with an attitude of joy because of the knowledge that we have. We've looked at this allowing endurance take its full result. But let's say you have trouble. You still have difficult times. You have trouble accepting the trial. You have trouble dealing with it maturely. You refuse to see it as a blessing and benefit to you. Do you beg God to take it away? Does this trial become temptation for your flesh now? Do you grumble going through it? Do you drop your arms? Does your flesh with its lust take over leading you into sin? Well, there is hope for you. And this is where James continues on. With this, he says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, 
And most of the people believe it's not just an abstract wisdom. It is in the context wisdom to deal with your suffering, to deal with your trial. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God for you to reap the maximum benefit from the trials. We ought to have this needy spirit, needy, dependable spirit. If you're saying, I'll be okay, you probably will not be okay. If you're saying, I'm going to just roll through it, no problem, you probably will not because you have to have a needy spirit and you constantly have to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I need wisdom because there is a reason why this trial is in your path. There's something that God wants to show you through this. And if you're just blowing through it and just waiting, Lord, can't wait till you get this over with, you're missing an opportunity. So you need this spirit where you say, Lord, what are you trying to show me through this? What are you trying to teach me? Where are my rough parts that you want to smooth out for your glory? Are you lacking wisdom? It says, ask of God. God is the source of that guidance. He's the source of that strength and patience and wisdom. The passage truly shows God as having this generous and sincere attitude and heart to give. In John 14, 12, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This is, speaks of the true nature of God, who loves to give. He just gives. And it says, take a look at this who gives to all generously and without reproach. Not only this generous heart, unconditional, but without reproach, meaning that he's not going to pin you down and say, see, I told you, you should have been different. You should have had this added. No, he says without reproach, without an insult. He's just going to give it to you because he loves this heart of dependence. He loves this heart of neediness. He just says, welcome home, son. Here you go. This is how you are to deal with it. This is the attitude that you're going to have. This is what you want to learn from this trial. God will never ask, never answer back, throwing shame at you or me for coming to him in the time of trouble, seeking for wisdom. I believe that this passage of asking for wisdom, it is not a passage where you come once and you say, Lord, give me wisdom. It is an attitude. There is urgency that you come over and over and say, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me direction. Give me proper attitude. Give me understanding. What is it that you're trying to do in my life? Number four, last point I'd like to mention is this. To reap the benefits from the trials, you ought to have an unwavering faith. Look with me. But, if, but he must ask in faith, verse 6, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. It is a little, it's interesting. If you look at verse 2, verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So you have to have faith in the beginning in order to go and develop endurance. As you go through that, your faith becomes stronger. If you don't have faith, you will be like the person in verse 6 who's continuously doubting, who's continuously questioning God's character, God's goodness. Is he really going to give it to me? Maybe I'm not worthy of that. Well, I don't think I have strength. He keeps coming. This is this word of double-minded, it's double-souled man who almost has a divided attitude, divided character. He says in one time, he says he turns toward God, and the other one, he turns toward his flesh or the world. One day he believes God and what he's going to do, and the other day he doesn't believe it. He's like the wave of the sea, like the pattern of these waves of the sea, up and down, up and down. He sort of believes, but he doesn't believe. And James says, for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Anything from the Lord. Because he's even unstable in all his ways. Whatever trial comes, he keeps failing in it. He keeps failing. And then another one comes and he keeps failing. And he sort of believes that God is going to help. And yet he doesn't. We have to have faith. We have to seek God in faith in order for our faith to be strengthened. Hebrews 11:6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. One man said, Faith unlocks the divine storehouse, but unbelief bars its doors. I hope you... Recall these four requirements in order for you to reap the, the, the maximum benefit of the trials. As we've said, the first one is the joyful attitude that is built and is committed because of knowing the truth. The second one is to let it endure, showing you that you have the submissive will. The third one is for you to have a needy spirit where you depend on the Lord. And the fourth one is that you have to have faith. You have to have faith in God and His character and that He will do His work. As a conclusion, I'd like to read to you a little post from, uh, as an example of a family that has persevered through much. Example of endurance that is maturing the character, maturing the faith of this family, which is Jangeto family. I asked for permission to read some of their posts. Jangeto family, if you are familiar with them, they have a son who was 16, almost 15 years old when he was diagnosed with a very aggressive brain tumor. This brain tumor leads to death within months. And yet they have gone through a very, very aggressive treatment for a year. They involved much of radiation, 
much of chemotherapy and um, the side effects, if you read, you know, she keeps a, Anna keeps a Facebook account and she posts on the progress how things go for Simon. Um, he has gone through much pain. And yet his spirit is strong. His faith in the Lord and in his faithfulness is amazingly strong. He serves as an example to many of the young people, even to his family, as one who just truly perseveres through faith in the midst of that trial. And I want to read to you this last post that Anna posted maybe a couple of weeks ago. And basically, Simon has developed some of the symptoms again, some headaches and pain. Um, she says this, This morning at our appointment, we were told that the irritation to the brain has gotten significantly worse. And the concern is most likely because of the new tumor growth. We were devastated. Simon, per usual, took it like a champ that he is. We talked about possible treatment options, knowing that radiation wouldn't be an option because the already, he already received the allowable lifetime limit. Neither would surgery because of scar tissue. That leaves with more chemotherapy. We were so broken. When the kids left the room, we had a chance to talk to the team more in depth, and I broke down. We mourned for our son. We grieved over his life, knowing the nature of this cancer. We knew what recurrence means. We read the scientific journals. We saw statistics. We did the research. We know. It's the ugliest and most aggressive form of brain cancer, and here we are with it wanting to claim our child. But he had outlived his initial prognosis, so it already feels like we're on the borrowed time. But God, just as we were leaving the hospital, the neurology oncology called twice. I didn't answer the full first time because my phone was on vibrate the long, and the short of it is that they were premature with the MRI results. The radiologist looked at the scans more in depth, taking account of all the films and not just what was available at preliminary report, and came to the conclusion that the inflammation had unique characteristics that was specific to radiation necrosis. This afternoon, the entire tumor board consisted of neurologists, neurosurgeons, neurooncologists, radiologists, all came to the consensus that it, it does indeed look like treatment effects and not necessarily tumor growth. What a relief to get that phone call. Having said that, there is still a concern for possible tumor, but with swelling still present, they cannot tell for sure. The good news is that it appears that if there is a tumor, it is not as active as originally thought. So the plan for Simon right now is recovery from the brain hemorrhage 8 to 10 weeks and watching him closely for any alarming signs of possible tumor growth. He's slowly tapering off the steroids, which helps considerably with the brain swelling, but comes with horrible side effects. The concern with the decrease in steroids, however good that sounds, is he may experience rebound headaches, nausea, and even seizures. This complicates things even more because those are the exact symptoms that to look for in a possible tumor growth. And this is where spiritual maturity character is expressed. Endurance. 
Overall, lots of praises tonight after an incredibly frightening two and a half weeks. We're so emotionally depleted and physically drained. When we received the initial MRI report this morning, all I kept thinking, even as I grieved my son, was that our God is still the same as he was before we walked through those doors. He is forever faithful. Thank you for standing firm in faith and prayers for our family. We are so grateful. What an endurance. What a maturity. What a faith. They need our prayers. They asked us to pray for them as well as they're going through the tough times. And I want to invite you to pray with me also. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. We want to praise you. And that we are not our own. We belong to you. We are your sheep. And you lead us day in and day out. And in different lives, life stages, we experience different trials, different pains. Lord, and we pray, give us wisdom to learn how to go through these. Give us an attitude of joy that is based on the truth of your character, your work, and your purposes for us. Lord, give us the strength and will to persevere and allow the work that you produce in us to take its work, to take place. Father, we pray that we would be continuously in needy state, that in no way we would be rebellious and help us that in no way we are to lose faith but to fully depend on you. We pray for Jangeta family. They have gone through almost two years of pain and suffering and trials, Lord, and we praise you that you have sustained their faith, especially Simon's faith. We pray that you would strengthen them even as they move forward with the treatment and life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.